Hello, everyone. This is Abby Carreri, Connexon Senior Vice President of Marketing, Sales, and Account Management. Welcome to Co-ops Connect, the podcast created for electric cooperatives considering or operating rural broadband networks. Each episode, we share stories from electric cooperatives deploying fiber broadband and tackling head-on the challenges and triumphs of bringing high-speed internet to rural America. Connexon is proud to be at the forefront of the electric cooperative fiber broadband movement and excited to share these inspiring stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Co-Ops Connect. We're catching up today with Keith Hayward, the CEO of Northeast Mississippi Electric Power Association and its fiber subsidiary, NE Spark. I'm really excited to talk to Keith today since Northeast Mississippi has made incredible strides over the last couple of years. Since its 2020 start of connecting members, the co-op has now completed its on-system build and has all zones open. AnySpark is actually the first multi-county fiber system in Mississippi to complete construction. Keith, we are so excited to have you with us today, and what an accomplishment. Let's start our conversation with a little detail about AnySpark, what your current take rates are, the number of subscribers you have, and the number of miles that you've built to complete your project. Thanks, Abby. It's good to be with you today. Um, Yes, exciting times around here. Very, very pleased with the way our project went. Amazed that we were able to build it in 25 months when we had scheduled a 40-month build. We came in $2 million under budget, but all 28,500 of the locations we serve have got fiber availability to them. We are up to 8,000 connected services now. We've got very, very good take rates in our rural areas. Of course, we serve a very affluent area around Oxford, Mississippi. We have a lot of multi-unit developments. So those take rates don't look as good, but when you dig into the numbers, they're not that bad. So overall, if you take 28,000 meters, that's about 30%. But if you back it down to just our membership of around 20,000, then we're looking at about 40%. So very pleased. Everything has flowed well. It wasn't easy in, in the beginning. A lot of hard work, a lot of dedication from a lot of really good employees. And, you know, I know we were talking earlier, too, about your overall take rates are looking in the 30% when you boil it down to your members only in the 40s. But there are some areas where you're seeing even higher take rates. Can you talk about that and then kind of what areas those are in your system? We've got pretty good density, even in our rural areas. Our numbers just always get kind of over-exaggerated because of all the apartment complexes that we have. But out in our rural areas, some of the first zones that we opened up out in the rural areas after we headed out with the CARES Act money, we're at 65 70% take rate on some of those circuits. That's holding true. I mean, we just, our last circuit we opened up was in Marshall County. It's very rural, very uh, distressed area. And I think we had 40% pre-registration take rate up there as soon as we turned it on. And we've hooked up several hundred up in that area already on about a 500 customer circuit. Most people are very excited when you hit out those rural areas. We're just now being able to breathe a little bit with our backlog. We were averaging 300 to 400 in the, as we call the hopper, every single week, hooking up 100 to 120 a week. And we're finally catching a break and our zones have been open a good while. And so we're we're averaging around 80 to 100 requests in the hopper. We're getting about 50 to 60 new requests every week now. So we're able to put a little more care in the installation process and 
our customer representatives are able to, to put a little more personal touch with our members. So that's going good. And the take rates around the city in our subdivisions, we put in over 100 miles of underground. I don't know that I mentioned, we put over 2,000 miles of aerial fiber, mainline fiber, and the service drop. I think about 500 miles of that is service drops. But 100 miles of underground is, is quite a bit for a build. That's in a lot of our affluent areas around Oxford. Everything in, in the city limits of Oxford has to be underground in these subdivisions. So that's been going on since the early 90s. We've got a lot of underground subdivisions that we serve, but even in those subdivisions, we've got about 30%, 35% take rates than the ones that we've been in there for a good while. Just because people are finding out that our service is really good. I think when you first start, people aren't so sure. And we, we actually did a marketing campaign with our uh, a group of students out at uh, the university. And we mentioned earlier about our name is, is Any Spark. And I came up with that in D.C. when I was getting ready to testify in front of the Senate Ag Committee. We talked about it earlier. I didn't think Spark was a good name for something that the electric cooperative owned, but I came up with the idea of spelling it with S-P-A-R-C, and it stands for Serving People Across Rural Communities. And it was really kind of funny. We were real proud of that name, and our customers love it, but the, some of the students were saying, we're not in a rural community. I think Oxford, Mississippi is only 25,000. I think the rest of America would call you rural you may think you're big, but you're not. He said, I think you don't sound big when you compare it like to at and I said, well, that's exactly right. I don't want to be compared to at and <laughs> So we're proud of the name. But yeah, the, it's just been fun. But the take rates in, in those areas are still, like I said, 30%. And they're dense. You got people that can hand sugar out the windows, pass them from house to house. You get 30% in a build like that. You know, you're doing good. You're paying for your facilities. For the listeners, could you tell them what your pricing tiers are and kind of in comparison to some of the um, other competitors that you're competing with in the areas? So we offer a gigabit service for $74.95 and we offer 100 meg for uh, $54.95 and we include the managed Wi-Fi and all of our services. We felt like with this new product and there's several people, especially the rural communities, the older people that don't understand the internet. I told people before, it's kind of like when cell phones came into the community. I remember telling my dad, it was in the 94 ice storm, I got my first bag phone, big hunting thing with a battery in it and all and and a phone that you had to plug up and to get a, a phone. And he said, I don't, I don't need a phone in my truck. I talk on the phone enough at the house. I don't want a phone in my truck. You know, fast forward 15 years later, before he passed away, I think his, when they used to charge you by the minute, his phone bill was averaging four or $500 a month for his cell phone in his truck. He just didn't understand the convenience that it would give you. And I, I think that's kind of where we are with some of the fiber out there. A lot of people, what do I do with this? I mean, my kids want it. My grandkids want it when they come over to the house. But what benefit is it going to give me? So the managed Wi-Fi, I felt like, was would help in that. You know, people confuse you. Look, you're going to hook up a TV. You got any issues, just call these people. And we use Exxon's tier support. And it's been a learning curve, I think, for both of us. Because I think, well, we were one of the original ones. But we have got that product and that service doing very well now. We get a lot of compliments from our customers on the service that they're getting out when they call in. They do get somebody that can help them and do a lot of things before we have to send a truck or something out there. That's kind of where we are. We also have a peer-to-peer offering that we kind of got begged into doing with our, some of our water associations that serve our members. You know, they want to monitor wells and have things that they aren't doing a lot on the internet. It costs a lot, a good bit to get the infrastructure put there, but they're not using it for much. So we've got a either 25 or 29, I think it's a $25 service that we we'll let them put up I and mean, they're going to be there forever and they're also providing service and then then we, we charge for the extenders and things of that nature 
We've got a few offerings on the phone systems also that we're just now getting ready to roll out some business offerings that we haven't set the prices on yet. But I mentioned multi-unit developments, apartment complexes. Those are hard to get into. The cable companies got out there and signed multi-year contracts. We've seen them anywhere from two years to 10 years. So we haven't broken into there too much. We did have one uh, developer come to us. He had 25 apartments. He wanted to pay for the fiber. So he caters to the students, as everybody does kind of like they want to provide as much as they can. So he was going to pay the bill. So we offer him gigabit service to all 25 apartments for $50 a month. But each one of those, you got to look at depending on what your infrastructure, how you're going to get into the apartment. You know, if you get on the front end of a build, it's easy. But if you got to go into a multi-unit development, it's got apartment complexes. It has 12 apartments per building. It's all bricked up and you don't know exactly how you're going to get fiber into all of those. You got to design all that, figure out what your spend is going to be, and then figure out what your price point is. If they're going to just offer it, you're going to be able to offer it to the tenants that come in or does apartment complex pay the electric bill and willing to pay the fiber bill. That's You get 100% take rate. It's a little bit different than it is if it's in a competitive situation where you're in there with AT&T and the cable company. The students every year rolling over have choice. So we want to get into those because we feel like we have an advantage because every one of those apartment complexes, when they roll over, they got to come get electricity, right? So we got the first touch point for them. So if we can get in those and sell the students when they come in or go online to fill out an application, we think we're in a better place to be able to sell our product. Quite frankly, the students... We've been following some of the social media feeds and the students know that we have really, really good service. They're asking, we saw it in de- usually in December and January, they start figuring out where they're going to live the next semester. They were asking on social media, where's Spark located? Which apartment complexes have any Spark? We want to go there. So I think that's just going to get a little bit more attention here in the future. Absolutely. The word of mouth from everyone around the communities will definitely help. And obviously, like you said, getting in there, bulk pricing, and then kind of maneuvering your way through figuring out who to talk to. Because I know early on we talked and you said you're talking to the gatekeeper of the complexes, you're not talking to the owners. So how to push through to get to them when they live out of state. It's hard to find out who the decision maker is. Because many of them are in different states and many of them really, they make the decisions, but they don't want to be bothered with making those decisions more than once or twice every once in a while. And it's hard to get in. And then the, the business is, is not what you're used to in the electric cooperative world. I mean, they're, they're paying kickbacks and giving favors to the people that are pushing their products. And I know we went to one and people signing up to the students, the apartment complexes, they'd get $10 from AT&T for everyone that signed up with AT&T. And you walk in and to talk to them and they got a AT&T mask on from the code from COVID. It's, it's a different business and you got to be ready for that if you're going to get into that arena. And for the listeners, can you kind of talk about now that you've finished your build early on when you were starting this project, you know, what dedicated resources were you using internally with the co-op? What services you decided to outsource and then where you are at today as far as employees, some higher on the subsidiary side and continue to grow and scale that. And then some continue to leverage internal staff and then grow their internal staff. So can you tell us how you're structured and then kind of the growth of the employees that you have now from inception to, to now that you've passed nearly 28,000 meters. So when we started the project and the board was looking into it and asking me, could we make it go? I told him that I felt like if anybody could, we could, because I have a great staff. With that said, we're one of the fastest growing co-ops in the Southeast. We're adding five, 600 meters a year now. We were not too long ago averaging 800 to 1,000, but that slowed down a little bit. And so we were fortunate with some younger people that had come up 
that I was able to take one of our senior, most senior, my head of engineering operations, Randall Abel, and put him totally over the project. He told me, he said, give me this and let me run with it and we'll make it go. And so he was very focused, did not want to disrupt the electric side. So we took the approach that we were going to hire most of this out, all contract work, and that we were going to require the contractors to have their own warehouse, take care of the material and everything. We end up using national on demand and they actually even schedule their own installs. So we had a very good employee for Connexon, Blake Nations. He was a engineer and we were not, we're in a college town. So y'all were able to actually hire some really good engineers, some good engineers right out the gate that were coming out of college and didn't know a lot about the fiber business, but they had the, the, I've always told people I can teach them what they need to know if I got, they got the right mentality and the desire to work. And that was what really kicked our project off and got us going. And then uh, as we've grown, we we're up to, I think, three service techs. Now we've got, we're fixed to hire one or two more. First employees we hired were cashiers because we, we took two of our cashiers and, and moved them into customer service reps for the fiber company. And then uh, I had another engineer that was over operations. I moved my safety coordinator and loss control person. I moved him into managing the crews and moved the engineer I had managed my crews over to manage the make ready work, which saved us thousands and thousands of dollars and gave me two people monitoring this project that were very, very good, knew how to get things done, knew the business and so I think that was one reason that we were actually able to complete this project in 25 months instead of 40 and come in $2 million under budget. I know CARES Act kind of lit a fire under y'all as well, having a very compressed timeline <clears throat> to build a certain amount to a certain amount of homes. And I know that any spark alone built more than 200 miles of fiber and passed more than 3,000 homes. And in less than five months, there were, I would say, what, 10 or so additional cooperatives in Mississippi, including yourself, that were leveraging $33.8 million in CARES Act funding to build over 2,000 miles and bring access to 14,000 rural Mississippi residents. So going back 18 months, can you kind of talk through that process of having to jumpstart your project and build at a faster pace? And I guess kind of what helped lead you all as well to getting your project done at a faster rate? So when we got started, I'll go back at the beginning. We, as we've talked about, we have Oxford, which is very affluent. And we were the models and everybody, you know, connects on a recommendation is go to these dense areas, get your cash flow going and then branch out into the rural areas. And then COVID hit. So for us, that decision became very, very beneficial because the CARES Act, they, you know, federal government sent CARES Act money to the state. It looked like you had to spend the money by the end of the year. And the broadband proposal said you had to substantially increase the availability of service to the area that you, if you want to apply for a grant. So we felt very confident because we were already blowing and going headed that way that we were going to be able to do that. And we had others in the state that we're wanting to do some pilot projects, but, you know, their board was apprehensive. They were still leery. That felt like if we could get, they could get some grant money that they would use it for a pilot project. We actually participated in a second round because there was some money left over and above what the co-ops did, but ended up being about $75 million for the co-ops. And it just set everybody on fire. Everybody thought we had to be through by the end of the year or at least, uh, you know, had until the middle of the year for the project. And we actually did finish building out and lighting all the fiber that we had 
put in, in our, and this was for unserved areas. You know, it's got to be the grant process had to be for unserved areas. Then they extended that to June, which helped a lot of our other co-ops, but it caused some problems too. But all of a sudden you got 30 contractors in here. We had 30 contractors working to try to build this. And of course, everybody else was wanting contractors. Since we had already started our project, we had gotten better pricing than everybody else was getting because of demand. So we actually had to go in and renegotiate with national on demand and up our price for that we would pay for stringing the fiber because we were losing subcontractors. So we had to make kind of a quick adjustment there, but it was still within the bounds of what our model had said. We had just gotten some good aerial pricing. So we worked with our contractor to, to help him keep people. And you had the hurricanes came in during that time. So a lot of people left to go to Louisiana to uh, do storm restoration. So it, it was very stressful, but there's money coming down the pipe in this B Act. We all think we're going to be through before that money is even released. So we're probably not even going to be able to get it be able to benefit from any of that. So in the CARES grant, I don't think I mentioned, we got around four and a half, almost 4.8 million, I think is what the, that was a true grant. So that helped. Our estimated bill was 48 million, spent 46. So when CARES came around, we had about 18, 19 million dollars worth of available money when the off bidding came out. So we, we won everything at 60%. So we've got 12.7 million. And of course, that comes in month for the next 10 years. So that's a little over a million a year. It goes straight to the bottom line. I mean, it's revenue and it just is going to help everything pay for itself much quicker. It would definitely help if we hadn't gotten so quick. And we, we've already started building off system now. And so the revenue coming in is funding a lot of the off system build. We're going to have to borrow a little bit of money, but very little for a very short period period of time. We won some Ardolf area in Pontotoc County, which is adjacent to us. And there's also another area that's really dense over there that's lacking in service that their customers have been calling, begging us to come serve. They got about 30 customers per mile line. Cable company's already there. We're going to build on top of them and serve that area too. That just makes the whole financial cash flow a whole lot better. I'd love to have gotten 80% or 90%, but you know, 60% is a lot better than some of the other systems received. We got one more stab at a little at the uh, treasury money that came to the state that we're going to try to apply for at the end of this summer, but hopefully we may get a little bit more grant money. But after that, I'm pushing people to, we talked to our legislators, they said, what do you need? And well, you know, we're still serving very rural areas and it's still a high cost to maintain. CAF money was always there to help people maintain service in those rural areas. I said, I think you need to consider a program to, to keep helping us provide this service in areas that it doesn't make sense to provide it. It's too cost effective. So I'm hoping going forward, maybe uh, we could get some money like that. And speaking of the off system, and then I know we're kind of running short on time, but how much off system do you all plan to build in total? Right now, it's we're looking at about 200 miles. Um, off system and it's it's adjacent to us looping back in we've got another system that friends of ours they're coming from the uh, east building west and we're coming from the west going east into this local county we actually drew a line down a highway we're going to share a hut and they're going to go one side of the highway we're going to go on the other side of the highway and try to provide that service to that area but it's about 200 miles And, and right now i don't think we don't have any intentions of doing anything more than that we plan on finishing that by the end of this year so um, hopefully, as far as new construction for new territory, uh, we'll be about done with the build out. And of course, we'll have several construction. We've actually got as many new electric system requests that we've, been, we've had in four or five years. We've probably got five new subdivisions on the books. I just hope we can get transformers for them. 
that's going to be that's becoming a nightmare. But we think we'll be about finished, and we think we'll have ten thousand customers by the end of this year. That's our goal is to have ten thousand by the end of the year. I don't doubt that's going to happen. And that was actually where I was going next is that the growth of your system in general, just you said five to 600 meters that you guys are hooking up, adding new subdivisions as well. So maybe your build kind of never really ends, right? You're continuing the continued growth and your system's going to continue. So where you would need more funding to maintain and, and then continue the growth inside of that. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. We've had it for a while, but you know, when I started at Northeast Power, I just completed my 34th year. We had 10,300 meters and now we have 28,500. That's uh, amazing. It's been crazy. Well, Oxford's a beautiful town. Love to get back there soon. And, you know, my dad went to Old Miss, so we're definitely fans. <laughs> and we just won the national championship, College World <laughs> Series. Exactly. Big things going on in Mississippi. Do you have any closing thoughts for us, Keith? You know, as you're wrapping up your build, what's next with Northeast Power? What else do y'all have going? The next thing on my plate is trying to figure out the electrification of things and what's going to happen with electric vehicles, what's going on with the supply chain issues and things. We're a TVA distributor. I was speaking with some of the TVA people. And the thing that's really interesting, if you're thinking about, is this a benefit to the electric system or are we just out there providing broadband to our customers and over our competitors in that space? Think about where we can go now that if we are going to have electrification, I think the next step, and, and I may not be here to see it all the way to get to this point, but I think there's going to be a change in the way we charge for electricity. I mean, all of our customers think electricity, I pay so much a kilowatt hour. And so many of our bills and our rates, they have demand charges, they have all these other different things. And you start talking about if people get electric vehicles and they do start flowing out into the system and you got charging stations and all, I think there's going to have to be a drastic change in education of our membership. And one thing that can help is the data that we can bring back from each location on what their energy use profile is. And some of the things that that I've even been talking futuristic. And I said, tell people, let's think out of the box. I mean, can you imagine putting out a day ahead hourly pricing structure that your electric car could download and know when it was best to charge? You've got that technology because now you have fiber out in your whole system. You've got communications and the cars have the smarts. You know, are we, we going to go to spot pricing, day ahead pricing on an energy basis? I don't like demand charges. I never have quite figured out why we penalize people in a 30-minute window or a one-hour window. And I think the next grid is going to be needs to be more resilient. I think it's going to need to be resilient 24-7, 365, not just on-peak, off-peak. I think we're, we're going to face some different things if we put another 30 to 35% load on the infrastructure we have now. I don't think we can build it fast enough to maintain that. You can't. The transmission systems aren't going to hold it. They can't build transmission systems in anybody's backyard. So I think there's going to be some complexity if we keep going down this path. I think that's going to be the next big thing that we really get into dig and dig into to study. That could be a whole nother topic in itself <laughs> <laughs> for a whole nother day, a whole nother <laughs> podcast. But I really appreciate your time today, Keith. I know it's all the time that we have. And thanks to all of our listeners as well. You know, we love to hear from you if you have any thoughts or questions or areas you'd like us to explore or any questions for Keith. You can always email us at marketing at connectson.us and we'd be happy to get back to you. Thanks again, everyone. And please tune in for our next episode of Co-Ops Connect. 
Thank you for listening. Co-ops Connect is brought to you by Connexon, the industry leader in rural fiber network design and construction management. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions and topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Please email us, marketing at connexon.us with your suggestions or for more information on how we support electric co-ops deploying broadband.